Please open your Bible to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. And if you're keeping score at home, that means there's only one chapter after this in the book of Matthew. Matthew 27. Now, a few weeks ago, I highlighted how it can be all too easy to miss the, the bigger picture of what Matthew is doing as he recounts the story of Jesus in his gospel. And in a very broad and overarching way, I took time to highlight how Matthew tells the whole story of Jesus through the lens of the history of Israel. Most clearly, this is seen as, as Matthew shows how Jesus is the better Israel at every point. And the, the Old Testament speaks again and again of Israel's failure, of the failure of their leaders and the faithfulness of God. And everywhere Israel failed, Jesus doesn't fail. So Jesus is the new and better Moses. He's brought into and out of Egypt. He passes through the water in his baptism. He is led into the wilderness for 40 days. And then from the top of a mountain, he gives the law of God to the people of God. And where Moses only came to give the law, Jesus comes to fulfill it. But the similarities with Israel's history, they don't end with Moses. Jesus, like Joshua, he sends out his 12 representatives into the land. Jesus, like Solomon, he is the wise teacher teaching in parables. Jesus, like Elisha, comes and builds a community of his followers, a community within a community that testifies to the kingdom of God. Jesus, like Jeremiah, proclaims judgment upon the temple and on the religious leaders of Israel who have sinned against the Lord. And Jesus, like Jeremiah, weeps over the sins of Jerusalem. Matthew tells the story of Jesus through the lens of Israel's history. Now, since a significant part of Jeremiah's ministry took place during the, the sacking of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians, if Matthew is, is really tracking the story of Israel, then the next thing that should take place is that the temple should be destroyed and there should be an exile. And as we've made our way through Matthew 26 and as we begin Matthew 27, this is exactly what's taking place. And there are really two layers to this, this temple destruction. In the first place, we see that God is bringing judgment upon the religious leaders of Jerusalem. So we, we saw him pronounce that just a few chapters ago in Matthew 23 and 24. He's, he's bringing judgment upon their distortion and their mis misuse of, of the temple, of their privileged place. And because of their sin, the glory of the Lord is leaving the temple. And this temple will soon be destroyed. Jesus tells the disciples not one stone will be left unturned. And it will be destroyed, ultimately, because it's no longer necessary. And this brings us to that second layer of the temple's destruction. In Matthew 26 and 27, we're witnessing the destruction of Jesus Christ himself. He is the temple. This meeting place between God and man. And his coming to earth is the very manifestation of the glory of God. He's the presence of God coming to dwell with us. So John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word used is tabernacled. The tabernacle points us to the temple. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And here in these closing chapters of Matthew, this is something we should have our eyes on. Jesus, as the new Israel, has been exiled by his followers. Jesus, as the temple, is being tragically destroyed. 
And so this morning we continue to watch this tragedy unfold as the very Son of God, the one who is innocent and righteous, is condemned and killed. Now we're going to walk through our our text together. We're going to consider three characters in this text. And we're going to, as we look at these characters, they're going to show us something about God and something about ourselves and something about this world. And I want you to know and to recognize that, that this is a, a heavy text that we come to. It's a dark text. And really, I mean, all, all, the, all the sermons both preceding this and, and coming shortly after this, they're heavy. We are approaching the darkest hour this world has ever seen. As Jesus Christ gives himself over to be subject to the wrath of God for sin, to the judgment of death itself. So look with me as we begin in Matthew 27, verse 1. Look at verses 1 and 2. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now last week we watched as the, as the chief priests and elders, they, they gathered at night. They gathered in darkness to condemn Jesus to death. Everything about that night seemed evil. It was evil. Their accusations, they were false and distorted. Their response to Jesus was, was grossly exaggerated and tragic. And it was just all darkness, all devastating. But now Matthew points out that mourning has come. Now we're, we're seeming to move from darkness to light. And for the religious leaders, they are seeing it as, as a new day. Finally, they, ha- they have Jesus under their thumb. They're about to be rid of this, this nuisance. But they have no idea of the darkness that is about to come upon the land this day. As we continue in our text, we might be surprised by what feels like an interruption. The scene changes. And even the, even the passing of time in Matthew's text changes. He's had a very tight narrative. It's moved from one event to another. And then, and then we move to this new scene. And this brings us to the first character we're going to look at, Judas. Judas. Look with me at verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Matthew brings us back to Judas, the one we last saw greeting Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with a kiss, bringing with him a great crowd with swords and clubs to arrest Jesus. This Judas, one of the twelve, who Matthew simply identifies as his betrayer, he comes to the chief priests and elders. These men who had been conspiring to condemn Jesus to death, he comes back to them. Now, it's un- unclear exactly when this is happening in relation to what Jesus is experiencing. But Matthew is very intentional to put this narrative with Judas right here. And I think the reason is this Matthew wants to contrast the response of Judas with the response of Peter. Now, you remember last week how we considered Peter's response to Jesus' arrest and the questions that came his way. Certainly, you too are one of them. And we heard Peter's vehement and devastating denial of any association with Jesus. Even after he had been so bold in his commitment to Jesus, so confident in his faith. I mean, he told Jesus, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. 
And then hours later, he's invoking a curse upon himself and swearing, I do not know the man. And then the rooster crows, and Peter remembers what Jesus said. And you can look at verse 75 just there. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went, went out and wept bitterly. Confronted with his failure, with his gross sin, Peter's response is to go out and, and weep. Now we know, particularly from John's Gospel, that this is not the end of the story for Peter. Later on, Peter runs to Jesus for forgiveness, demonstrating true repentance. True repentance is, is demonstrated in conviction, confession, and turning. That's true repentance. It's when our hearts are convicted that we've done wrong. And then we confess this wrong to God and to those we've wronged. And then we turn to Jesus for forgiveness and walk in the good of his righteousness. And this is what Peter ultimately demonstrates. The story is not over for Peter when he goes out and weeps bitterly. But Matthew shows us something different about Judas. He contrasts the story of Peter with the story of Judas. And here as we come to Matthew 27, verse 3, Judas, you'll notice, he recognizes his sin. He recognizes his wrongdoing. And so he comes to the temple, to the chief priests and the elders, and he confesses his sin. I heard one pastor say that it's as if Judas has realized he's on a train that's headed in the wrong direction. And so he gets off that train. And that's a, that's a good thing. You should get off that train. It's going in the wrong direction. But the problem is that that's all really Judas does. And I think to take the analogy a little bit further, not only does he not get on the train going in the right direction, he gets on a different train that's heading in the wrong direction still. He brings his sin to the chief priests and elders. So Judas, he experiences conviction. He confesses his sin. But he fails to run to Jesus for forgiveness. It's like a half repentance that is no repentance at all. He fails to turn to the only one who can atone for his sins. And I think Pro Paul probably had this contrast between Peter and Judas in mind when he writes in this in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. He talks about godly grief. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So here we have Peter. Peter was grieving over his sin. But his grief led to a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. We want to be those, brothers and sisters, who experience godly grief over our sin. Godly sorrow for the wrong that we do against God. Because this kind of sorrow leads to salvation. But sorrow that is only in response to the consequence of our sin Sorrow that doesn't see God in the picture. Sorrow like the sorrow of Judas only leads to death. I, I think back to when I was uh, younger. I was probably, oh, probably nine years old or so. I was homeschooled, and it was a form of homeschooling that wasn't super present in its leadership. And uh, I, one night, I'm lying in bed, and I experienced conviction over wrong that I had been doing. And there had been... I don't remember how long it had been, maybe two or three months that I had not been doing two of my subjects in school. Just wasn't doing them. And conviction set in, and I was in tears in bed. And I came out and I told my parents that for the last two months I haven't been doing science and history. 
And I mean, my dad's like, Julie, what? But that's another story. <laughs> but I, I experienced real conviction over this. But what I, the, the sorrow that I was feeling was more over the, the consequences of if I knew what was coming. Uh, it was the fact that I'd, I'm going to be disciplined now. And that's what, I, that's what I was having sorrow over. And I think for many of us, that's how we deal with our sin. I mean, we might feel sorrow over our sin, but if it's only sorrow over the consequences of our sin, it's worldly sorrow. And that sorrow can only lead to death. But godly sorrow leads to salvation because it's a, it's a repentance that recognizes what we just saying. The Lord is good and faithful, and He will keep us day and night, and we can always run to Jesus. Jesus strong and kind. When Judas comes to the temple and he confesses his sin, the chief priests and elders respond in verse 4. They say this. You can see there in the second half of verse 4. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. In effect, they're saying, this is not our problem. It's yours. Deal with it. Now, we'll come back to this response in a moment, this damning response in a moment. But Judas, he, he responds hastily and drastically in devastating fashion. Matthew writes in verse 5, And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. In this moment, as he sees Jesus condemned to death, he feels the weight of his betrayal of an innocent man. Judas has lost all hope. All hope. And even though he recognizes that Jesus is innocent, he's betrayed innocent blood, blood, he fails to recognize, again, who Jesus is. Because if Jesus is only an innocent man, then yes, what Judas has done is, is tragic. But if Jesus is indeed the innocent Son of Man, who came to lay down His life for His sheep, then there is hope. Even for Judas, there is hope. But Judas apparently does not believe this. He knows that something must be done about his sin, this betrayal of innocent blood. He knows that someone must atone for his sin. And so he goes to the chief priests and elders, hoping that they're going to deal with it. And they say, not our problem, your problem. And so he deals with it himself. Judas, out of hopelessness and out of despair, he breaks the sixth commandment and he kills himself. And as one commentator said, he should have run to the tree of Calvary for life. Instead, he ran to another tree for death. Tragic. When you think about who, who Judas was and, and the time that he spent with Jesus. What he would have seen and what he would have experienced of Jesus, yet he failed to live in the good of that. When we see these stories of Judas and Peter, it would be mistaken if we would be mistaken if we do not see two men who are actually a lot like us. We are all great sinners, guilty sinners, who need help that can only ever come from outside of us. Peter and Judas, they serve as a mirror for us. We can know the right answers. We can know the Word of God. We can make resolutions on our own. I will never deny you. But none of us can save our souls. Each of us needs a Savior. So where can we find this Savior? 
Where can we find hope in the despair of our sin? Only by looking to Jesus. What can wash away your sin? What can make you whole again? It's not the blood of bulls or goats. Not your own blood. Only the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's a theme that emerges in Matthew 26 and 27, and it plays, out, it plays a prominent role in the text that we're looking at today, and it's blood. Blood. We saw it come up in Matthew 26, 27, when Jesus takes the cup and he says, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And notice how, how Judas comes to the chief priests, and this is what he says. He talks about blood. I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. He doesn't talk about Jesus, a man. He talks about betraying innocent blood. Even the religious leaders recognize that there is this problem with blood. Something must be done about it. So we're going to consider this next set of characters, the chief priests and elders. The chief priests and elders. When Judas comes to these men, to these religious leaders, with the problem of betraying innocent blood that must be dealt with, the chief priests respond by telling Judas that this is not their problem. Now this is a shocking response. If we're, if we're new to this narrative or we're tracking with this narrative, this is shocking. The responsibility of these men, of these chief priests, was to represent a sinful people before holy God. That's what the priests did. And they made sacrifices to make these people clean. They made sacrifices for themselves and for others. And so Judas comes to them with this problem of, of sin, this problem of innocent blood that he has betrayed, and they don't want it anywhere near them. Look back at verse 6. Let's pick up there. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. They say this money has blood on it. We can't bring it into the Lord's house. And so in the midst of tragedy and injustice, the Jewish leaders are more concerned with what to do about blood money than they are with their role in condemning innocent blood. Instead of stopping to deal with the problem of condemning an innocent man, big problem, they stop to deal with what to do with these 30 pieces of silver that have been thrown into the temple. And this money was actually theirs in the first place because they paid it out in order to condemn this innocent man. It has everything to do with them. Verse 7 says, So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Here Matthew gives us this unusual note about what the chief priests did with this money. They bought the potter's field, which was a place that was outside of Jerusalem. It probably wasn't owned by a potter, but was probably where potters would go and get their clay. Once the land had been used up and depleted of its clay, the land was pretty much worthless. And so the chief priests go and buy it. And the reason for buying this land was to bury people who had no other place to be buried. It would be for travelers and for strangers and for criminals. The chief priests were very conscious of what was clean and unclean. That's why they cared about this being blood money. It was unclean. And so what do they do with unclean money? They buy a place to put unclean bodies. A place that Matthew says is now known as the field of blood. 
And there's that theme again, blood. The blood money was used to betray innocent blood, has now purchased a field of blood. And while the chief priests, they want to do all they can to stay away from blood, the blood of Jesus clings to them. It contaminates them. It brings judgment upon them. And this brings us to our third character, our most important character, Jesus Christ. Matthew turns then to what is described as one of the strangest fulfillment passages in the Gospel of Matthew. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now when we read those verses, they don't seem so strange. Uh, We've grown accustomed to seeing the fulfillment of prophecy in Matthew. It's all over the place. We think about Matthew 1 where Matthew quotes a prophecy from Isaiah 7.14 that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Or in Matthew 2 where Matthew quotes Micah 5.2 that Bethlehem will be the birthplace of a ruler who will shepherd God's people. And we love this. I mean, it's, it's wonderful to see these things and see God's sovereign purposes and plans being worked out over hundreds of years. And so we assume, though, that, that all prophecy is the straightforward. We assume that all fulfillment is like this, and we can just draw the straight line. Oh, yeah, prophecy here. Yep, this happened right here. Sometimes this is the case, but not all the time. And this is one of those times. Matthew tells us that this is what is said by the prophet Jeremiah. But the problem for us is that the language that Matthew uses is taken almost directly from Zechariah. So Matthew says, hey, this is what Jeremiah said. And then we read a verse from Zechariah. Now in Zechariah 11, God calls Zechariah to be a shepherd to a flock of sheep that is doomed to be slaughtered. This is Zechariah 11. These sheep are meant to represent God's people. And while the shepherd came to do good and to protect these sheep, this shepherd, Zechariah, he's rejected by all the people. And so he gives up on them. He breaks his staff. He had two staffs, one called favor, one called union. He breaks his staff called favor and goes to those who own the sheep. And this is what is recorded in Zechariah 11 beginning in verse 12. Then I said to them, Zechariah, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave, as you remember. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And this sounds awfully familiar, right? 30 pieces of silver, the potter, all this language that comes up in Matthew 27. And we see in both Zechariah 11 and in Matthew 27 that God's shepherd is hated by the leaders in Israel and valued at the price of a slave. 30 pieces of silver. And then that money is thrown into the temple. The parallels are really stunning between these two texts. But our problem is that Matthew says that this is what Jeremiah says. So did Matthew make a mistake? No. 
I don't think you've made a mistake. The solution, I think, is actually quite simple. We need to recognize, first, that this was primarily an oral society. So things were learned not as much through reading as through hearing. And so when, was, when someone was quoting from more than one person, if they were bringing together insights from various sources, they would normally highlight the more important speaker. Actually, Mark does this in, in Mark 1. It's Mark 1, verse 2, so the very beginning of Mark. Mark says that he's quoting Isaiah, but then he quotes a combination of Isaiah and Malachi. Now, we, I mean, we're in a, a rationalistic, straight-line, black-and-white world. The Western world is much like that. But the, the world of the Bible is one filled with stories and with symbols and with images that shaped how people view the world. And we want to see with Bible eyes. So this is what Matthew was doing as he uses the language of Zechariah. Even though he's borrowing those words, he wants us to know, I've got Jeremiah in mind. The images and ideas that he conveys, they're all, all themes of Jeremiah's entire prophetic ministry. So Matthew wants us to think of Jeremiah as we read this story. And so where do we go in Jeremiah? Well, I don't think all of us are, are up to speed on the ministry and life of Jeremiah. But Jeremiah was a prophet who prophesied for a long period of time that began prior to the fall of Jerusalem and continued through the fall of Jerusalem. In Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah visits a potter's house who is working his wheel and forming his clay. And the Lord tells Jeremiah that this is God shaping his people. But if they reject him, they will be rejected. In Jeremiah 19, Jeremiah is told by God to go and buy a clay jar from the potter. And he's told to bring the chief priests and elders out to the potter's field and to warn them that Jerusalem will be destroyed if they persist in their sin. And so he is told to smash the clay jar to represent the judgment that will come upon them. In Jeremiah 26, Jeremiah declares the word of God in the temple to the chief priests and elders. Sound familiar? warning them of judgment if they reject the word of God. The chief priests and elders, they reject Jeremiah. And Jeremiah tells them this in chapter 26, verse 15. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to you to speak all these words in your ears. In Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah is told by God to go and buy a field as a sign that God will indeed bring his people back to this land, even after its destruction. So in the, in the midst, it's like if, if somebody goes over to Ukraine right now and says, yeah, I want to buy this apartment building in this, in this place, this area that was just bombed. It's like, what are you thinking? Like, no, that's ridiculous. It's like, no, I know what's going to happen. I know what the future holds. That's what Jeremiah is doing. So Jerusalem lies in devastation, and Jeremiah goes and buys a field as a sign that God indeed will bring his people back and restore his glory. And so we see Matthew bringing together all of these themes and ideas and bringing them to bear on the life of Jesus, the innocent one, the rejected shepherd, the sovereign Savior, the one who is betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That money is then used to buy a field for those who are outcasts, for those who are exiled. 
to be buried in this field of blood. The chief priests and elders, they think that a new day is dawning for them. But all of their evil only operates in accordance with God's sovereign purposes. This is what we see as Jesus is given over to Pilate. He doesn't need to stand and defend himself, for he is innocent. He doesn't argue, for he is in control. He doesn't answer, for he is truly the Son of God, doing the will of the Father. Look at verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Our passage began with Judas feeling like he must do something. He must act because of the atrocity of betrayal. He's anxious as he feels guilty. He's active and he runs to the chief priests. Contrast this with Jesus, who stands silently before his accusers. In the face of his injustice, he is passive, but he is entirely in control. So Jesus comes as king, but not as Pilate imagines him to be. He is the king of a kingdom, not of this world. He's the king who gives up his life as a ransom for his people, for all those who look to him, who believe on him, who run to him, who are washed in his blood. While Judas ran to the chief priests who wanted nothing to do with him, each one of you is invited to the high priest, the one who is after the order of Melchizedek, the one who is priest forever, the one holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. Since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. Thanks be to God. Grace Church, none of you can escape the blood of Jesus. It will either be charged to you and bring judgment upon you, or it is shed for you. If you try to ignore it, to remove it, to wash it off, you will only be doomed. But if you receive his blood as blood that is shed for you, you can be washed clean. Be washed in the blood of Jesus. Because his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. His blood speaks an eternal word of forgiveness and pardon. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith, faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, 
who came and dwelt among us. His body was destroyed on our behalf. He suffered and faced your wrath for our sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. Afflicted for our unrighteousness. And by looking to Him, by running to Him, we can receive the gift of eternal life. We can be washed in His blood. This once for all sacrifice. So we trust in You. We look to You. We hope in You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.